You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, August 15th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everybody. Rebecca is traveling, so cannot join us this week. So, Evan, you're back in your old slot as uh, covering this day in skepticism. Yep, and the seat is still warm, I might add. Thank you very much. August 18th, 1986. I remember it well. I remember it well. Unfortunately, yeah. I was a junior in high school. Man, that was a long time ago. Wow. Yeah, actually, I think that was the year I graduated. But on that date. 1986, 72 Nobel Prize winners in science urged the Supreme Court to reject a Louisiana law calling for, quote, balanced treatment, unquote, of evolution and creationism in public schools. So as you can tell, this is not just a more modern phenomena going on in our society these days. This dates back to the uh, 1980s and even well before that. The news release described the scientists as the largest group of Nobel laureates ever to support a single statement on any subject. So is that important to them, that 72 of these people had to get together and make sure that this law got struck down? And sure enough, it did. Supreme Court ruled against the law on June 19th in 1987. So... Yeah, this is the uh, Edwards versus Aguilard case. This is now a one of the pillars of uh, Supreme Court law keeping creationism out of public school science classrooms. This pretty much ended the equal-time creation science approach uh, and then led to the their next move, you know, the intelligent design, teach the weaknesses of evolution approach. But that, so that, yeah, that was a very important case law. For the most part, good results coming out of the U.S. court system uh, when it comes to matters of creationism versus evolution and the teaching in the classrooms. It's kind of sad it has to get to that point that, you know, lawsuits are constantly being brought up. But so far, we've done uh, pretty well uh, in uh, in defending science. It's still scary, though. I still think they're just getting slicker and smarter about it. They're kind of, you know, they're evolving their approach. And one of these days, I just can't, I can't help but think that they're going to slip some crap in, and then that's going to be it. Then I got to yeah. move out of this. Then I got to move out of this country. Yeah, I hear you. You know, judges are people too, and you know, it's maybe just a matter of time if they do this and try to repeat it more and more and more over the years and decades. One of these courts is probably going to let something through at some point, and that's going to be a sad day. You're right, Bob. We need to keep vigilant because they're constantly seeking ways around the Constitution. All right, so let's move on to some news items. The first one is about eggs and atherosclerosis. So what do you guys think? After all the research and the news back and forth, are eggs good for you or bad for you? What's the bottom line? Well, I'm familiar with this topic, so but okay. still, still I think um, eggs overall are, are good for you, and I don't care what you say. I think they're a good source of protein and other uh, nutrients. And riboflavin. Uh, right. Well, like anything, that's well, almost anything. It's not without its negatives, but I think the positives outweigh the negatives. Yeah, that's that's basically what I would say. the The controversy is about the cholesterol. Now, if, if you guys remember, you know, again, going like back to the '80s, there was the whole oh, eating cholesterol causes increases in your blood cholesterol, and that's the killer that causes hardening of the arteries and atherosclerosis and heart disease. And eggs were, for some reason, a huge focus, uh, especially the egg yolks. But then it turned out that research was showing that, well, the 
cholesterol in eggs actually doesn't increase your serum cholesterol. It seems a little counterintuitive. Is that because of the nature of cholesterol in the eggs or the nature of cholesterol itself? I think it's the nature of cholesterol itself. Eating cholesterol in general doesn't raise your serum cholesterol. Yeah, I've I've always read that if you if you're looking for your if you want to control your serum cholesterol, you worry about things like fat, just total fat yeah. intake, rather than than cholesterol itself. Yeah, and even in the eighties, the, the the we were still focused on total fat, but actually that's not even the answer. It's the kind of fat that you eat. You know, the bad fat, the bad right, like the LDL raising type of fat that. The saturated fats and the trans fats, those are the bad ones. But, uh, but other kinds of, of lipids of fats are good, like anything that increases your HDL or the good cholesterol. Uh, so the question is, so it's not just that there's cholesterol in any particular food like eggs or that there's fat. It's what, what's the balance? What kind of fat is it and how does it affect your lipid profile? And that's now been the, the focus of the research over the last 20 years in general and specifically with eggs. And, and the, the literature has moved in the direction of, yeah, that the cholesterol in eggs is actually not so bad. Uh, but a study came out recently by Canadian researchers looking at people's consumption of eggs and the amount of atherosclerosis or, you know, cholesterol buildup in their carotid arteries, the arteries that feed the brain. They looked at, uh, 1,262 patients who were seen in a vascular prevention clinic. So they're, they're used, starting with people who have all had studies of their arteries to see how narrowed they are, uh, how much thickening of the arteries there is from atherosclerosis. And then they gave them a survey asking them about how many eggs they eat, about their smoking history, and a bunch of other questions that are, are relevant to that. Then they came up with this measure that they're calling egg yolk years, egg yolk years which is the number of eggs per week times the number of years you've consumed those eggs, which is similar to, you know, when we take a smoking history, we usually record it in pack years, how many packs per day times how many years you've been smoking as sort of a rough estimate of your total, you know, risk or burden from smoking. So they were, they were modeling it after that. Then they compared egg yolk years to the degree of atherosclerosis on the carotid studies. And what they found was that it, there was a positive correlation, that the more egg yolk years you had, the more eggs you ate, basically, the more thickening you had in your arteries. Well, how they specifically attribute that to the eggs? I mean, what the hell else are these people doing over the course of that time? Well, that's a very good question, uh, because this is an observational study, right? They didn't control for it prospectively, so it's a retrospective study. They're using just a survey data. There's, there's potentially many confounding factors in here. For example... There was a positive correlation with age. You know, the average age of people who ate the least amount of eggs was 55, and the ate the most amount of eggs was 69. That's like a 14-year uh. difference in age. Now, they controlled for that when they looked at the data, but because this is, this is a, a retrospective study where you're not, you can't control for variables, you just can try to record as many as you can, that who knows what else, you know, is going on with the data. And it, the other thing is, here to me, this is the killer for this study. They looked at total cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, and LDL. And guess what they found? What? No freaking difference Fat. at all. No <laughs> difference. So the no eating, difference. yeah, so the eating eggs did not increase your total cholesterol, did not increase triglycerides, did not lower HDL good cholesterol, did not increase LDL or good cholesterol or bad cholesterol. But doesn't that break any possible connection? Well, yeah, right? Doesn't that argue sort of strongly? So what's the mechanism then? So eggs cause atherosclerosis, but not by affecting the lipid profile in any way? 
<laughs> yeah, so that kind of calls into question a causal relationship there. So now we have a an a, a correlation, but you know the the coral the, the causation that they're inferring here is very dubious, and there's lots of potential confounding factors. So I don't know that we could make too much of this study. The authors acknowledge that in their conclusion, you pretty much have to to get this past peer review. You know, no peer reviewer worth their salt would allow that to go unnoticed. So the authors concluded they say our findings suggest that regular consumption of egg yolk should be avoided by persons at risk for cardiovascular disease. This hypothesis should be tested in a prospective study with more detailed information. About diet and other possible confounders, such as exercise and waist circumference. So they have to acknowledge that, yeah, they, you know, they, they need to control for confounders. It wasn't prospective. But still, I don't think this study really shows anything that we can draw any conclusion from. I mean, the most significant data is the lack of any effect on the cholesterol. So I wrote about this on science-based medicine, and yeah, I did, I did as much you know as I could. I looked uh, up, tried to get up to date on the literature on eggs, cholesterol and atherosclerosis and heart disease and, and damn it's complicated i mean there's it, the story really is complex so there's so many variables like you could be looking at the general healthy population patients who've had heart disease patients with diabetes men versus women and you get the data is kind of all over the place. It's hard to sort of pull a signal out. There was one review actually by the same authors who really concluded that and again, they used the same thing of comparing the risk of eating eggs to the risk of smoking. But other than these authors, they seem to be out there kind of on their own now. The the, the rest of the literature is, is mixed and sort of leaning like against any significant role of eggs. I found studies that showed that eggs reduced risk of death or reduced risk of heart disease. Studies that showed really no effect at all. And others that say, oh, it may be for this subpopulation or for that subpopulation, or maybe like with diabetes or maybe in women in another study, there may be a tiny risk. But, you know, it just there wasn't a clear consensus that there was a risk from eating eggs. Again, these researchers seem to be off on their own. A 2012 review, so the most recent review that I that I found, said this, the findings are suggestive of a small but potentially important reduction in cardiovascular risk on modification of dietary fat, but not reduction of total fat in longer trials. Lifestyle advice to all those at risk of cardiovascular disease and to lower risk population groups should continue to include permanent reduction in dietary saturated fat and partial replacement by unsaturates. The ideal type of unsaturated fat is unclear. So this is just looking at just, you know, cholesterol fat in the diet and risk. They're saying, mm, maybe a small risk. Sure, you probably should avoid a lot of saturated fat in your diet. But there really isn't a clear, clear signal there. So it's interesting. What I found also from reading around is that there, there, there's the, definitely the, this anti-cholesterol school of thought. You know, people who think that dietary cholesterol and even just your serum cholesterol has, is not a risk factor for heart disease or vascular disease. I think they've gone too far. I think they have an agenda. I don't buy their that position. I think there's enough evidence to say that you know, that having really high serum cholesterol, especially a bad profile, you know, high LDL to HDL ratio does, is a significant risk factor for vascular disease, heart disease, stroke, and peripheral vascular disease. The story is more complicated than we thought 20 years ago, but it's definitely, it's definitely real. But, you know, I'm not sure why these Canadian researchers are, are so anti-egg and are trying to like go back to the 1980s view of, of cholesterol and, and eggs in particular. What I find interesting is not with just with this question, but any question of diet and health and, and longevity and you know, risk factors for certain things. Let's say, uh, try a thought experiment. We take two approaches to this 
to the lifestyle choices you make and your life expectancy. You could take a maximally simple algorithm as a first approximation of the scientific evidence. And hey, that, hey, explain that again. Yeah. So in other words, <laughs> what rule of thumb could you follow for your lifestyle choices that would be as simple as possible, but still basically follow the scientific evidence? I would summarize that as follows. In terms of your diet, everything in moderation and have a varied diet. That's it. That's a pretty simple rule. Just, you know, just nothing, nothing too extremes. Don't eat a lot of any one thing. Have a varied diet, you know, including uh, fruits and vegetables um, by definition, if it's, you know, your diet is varied enough and you'll be fine, right? So that's sort of the, the simplest rule that gets pretty close to the scientific data. If you want to expand that to all lifestyles, I would say have a varied, moderate diet, exercise regularly, you know, have regular sleep, don't drink a lot of alcohol and don't smoke. That's it. That, that's really what the last 50 years of scientific evidence have told us about lifestyle and risk factors. Again, this is for the general healthy population to emphasize that. If you have certain diseases, and then it gets more complicated as you have to accommodate in specific diseases. Like if you're a diabetic, you need to be on a diabetic diet. Now, compare that, that approach, a person following that approach, to somebody who obsessively follows the scientific evidence in as great detail as possible and tweaks their diet and their lifestyle to account for every nuance of the scientific data. And I'm saying they're, they're being scientific. They are following the evidence, but they're trying to, to tweak their behavior and their, and their diet specifically so that they're adjusting, you know, every macronutrient, every micronutrient, every vitamin, everything to its optimal range, avoiding things that should be avoided, you know, like really obsessing and, and basically dedicating their life to having the optimal diet. Honestly, I don't think there would be a significant difference between those two approaches. I, I don't think that if you if you get any difference, you know, if the obsessive approach is any different than the the simple algorithm approach, I don't think it's that significant. I think actually the difference there is within the noise of the data that we have. I don't yeah. think we have enough scientific data to get to be that obsessive person. I think that the simple algorithm is really what we can say based upon the evidence. Right. So I mean, the, the quality of life you would lose and the time you would lose obsessing over it wouldn't be worth it. And, and yeah, it's not, right? even, it's not even clear that you would net a day of life from right. doing that. But even right. if you did, I mean, yeah, you, there's this other question of would it be worth it? So, and, and the other thing is that most people can't, can't really comply with that obsessive lifestyle and worrying over every little detail. So honestly, I think it's far better to just to really emphasize the simple approach because that's basically what the what the scientific data is telling us anyway and you know once you try to get more detailed than that there's you're into controversy and the limits of the data that we have and the noise of the data that we have so just keep it simple i think that's that's that would be my prescription that's steve's healthy lifestyle keep it as simple as possible i can't get a whole book out of that right that's like on one sheet of one side of one paper Keep it, you know, you know a varied, Kiss. a varied, moderate diet. Exercise. Don't smoke. Don't drink to excess. Get and get a good night's sleep. That's all you need to do. It's the kiss concept, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, right. It's, Keep it's it very easy to say get a good night's sleep because ah, there, right. there, because there's a there's a ah. few parameters here, and you know, sleep is a, another topic that we think would be an interesting thing for us to really talk about. But there are people that just can sleep well, but they're not giving themselves enough sleep time, right? That's yeah. one thing. 
and for the most part, the, the good average is between seven and nine hours of sleep. But a real problem, and it's something that I suffer from, is I just don't sleep well. I can yeah. give myself an eight-hour clip or a nine-hour clip. I just don't get a lot of quality sleep during that time. It's probably because I, you know, I have way too many things going on in my life that I can't possibly get to. But you know, that's a different problem, and a lot of people suffer from that. And there's, it's very hard to to work your way through an issue like that. Yeah, you're, that's right, Jay. So the the thing that's different about sleep is that you don't have total control over it. You have total control over what you put in your mouth, what you do. Although people may have physical limitations that make it difficult to exercise as well, but you could always find something. You control if you smoke, how much you drink, but you can't control how well you sleep because you can have issues. You can have insomnia or whatever problems with your sleep. And it's, I think it's a hugely underdiagnosed and undertreated problem. My advice is if you, if you are, if you have good sleep hygiene, that's the stuff you can control basically, the lifestyle factors that you can control. If you have good sleep hygiene and you're still not sleeping well, then you have a sleep disorder and you need to treat that as a medical condition and you need to get treated for, diagnosed properly and treated properly for that. You shouldn't just accept. Now, I have patients who come to me like, oh yeah, I get three, four hours sleep at night and it's been that way for a long time. And you don't see that as a medical problem? That's a medical problem. You need, that needs to be addressed. We need to do a sleep study or whatever. You know, we need to address it. Uh, but a lot of people just don't think of that as a medical issue that needs to be aggressively treated. Then they wonder why they're tired and gaining weight and, you know, they have all these <laughs> symptoms which are demonstrably related to lack of sleep. And, and they just don't make that connection. So yeah, they, we, there need, definitely needs to be more public awareness about sleep disorders. There needs to be addressed more as a problem. I think it's related a lot to the obesity problem in this country, both cause and effect, apparently. Lack of sleep results in being overweight and being overweight impairs sleep. You get sleep apnea and it's, you know, it's poor, poorer quality sleep. So it's a vicious circle. All right. Well, Bob, tell us about people trying to hack into the Mars rover. Yeah. Pretty. Wild stuff. So Are people on Mars trying to hack in. Yeah, there? right. Bastards. So the Curiosity rover has uh, has not been doing much roving around yet. They're still kind of like in diagnostic mode and taking pictures from where they are. It hasn't really. I don't think it's moved an inch. But um, but there's some talk, as Steve said, about possible attempts to remotely hack the rover from tens of millions of millions of miles away. Uh, I guess the word remotely is a little bit redundant because nobody's actually on the planet doing it. So apparently a, a request was recently made in a well-known hacker IRC or Internet Relay chat room asking for help in his attempts to hack Curiosity. And the, the post went like this. He said, he or she said, anyone in Madrid, Spain or Canberra who can help isolate the huge control signal used in the, for the Mars Odyssey Curiosity system, please? The cipher and hopping is a, sta- is a standard mode, just need base frequency and uh, recordings feed of the huge signal going out. So now this this request came uh, days or very soon after somebody from uh, PC Magazine, Damon Potter, wrote an in-depth article called How to Hack NASA's Curiosity Rover. So yeah, there's definitely some concern that this this was real. But actually, you know, this could be a real hacker. Uh, this could be a joke. It could be somebody just messing around. or And it could even, I guess, potentially be a sting operation to see you know to see who would actually help this guy out people, help yeah. this guy out now if you if you read Poter's um article on on how to do it it's it's not as irresponsible uh as you as you as it may seem and you and you'll see why as I talk a little bit about this uh but regardless though is hacking curiosity even possible 
And from what I can gather, uh, it does seem like it, it is definitely possible. So consider this. I didn't know this. Um, did you know that NASA routinely updates the, the firmware and the software on its rovers from millions of miles away? Even like, you know, while it's in flight traveling to Mars or on the planet, it actually, they actually do a remote deploy of code on, on the thing. Like, for example, Curiosity had all its code dealing with the, the EDL or entry descent landing, which happened, uh, spectacularly most recently. Um, it had all that software replaced. The guidance software was no longer needed since it's landed. It's on the planet. You know, you don't need this software, you know, about, about how to enter and descend onto the planet. Uh, so they replaced it with the software to make it more autonomous and to help with the pathfinding and instrument analysis to improve its vision and things like that, things that it definitely needs right now. And uh, reading that, though, I had some questions. I, in a hard drive space, it, we, we've got terabytes coming out of our finger, fingertips. So why, you know, why is space at such a premium, um, even on, even on a, a probe like that? It didn't seem to me that they can't just have all this, all the software that they need. Uh, instead of taking this this risk of a remote update, but then of course on the other hand, you know they're probably very confident about these updates since they've done it with all the other rovers. And plus, this doesn't. I'm not talking about if you have like new code, code that's an update and that's been signed off and ready to go. Then by all means, do the update if it's actually going to make the the rover perform its job even better. But you wouldn't even have to replace the software or or hijack the software by updating it or replacing it. All you'd really have to do is take over the rover using your own equipment, right? If you had the equipment that NASA has, then you could you could do the same thing that they do. And of course, that's a huge statement. And uh, this actually seems possible. But as you may imagine, this it would not be easy. First, if you really want to do what NASA does, you need to build something like their Deep Space Network, which is a worldwide... Uh, collection of radio dishes that they use to send and receive messages from curiosity and these are powerful guys they're like 400 kilowatts you'd have to you need that much juice if you wanted to any real chance of you know of over, overriding nasa's signal and I, I don't think radio shack carries those so that obviously that's a huge huge impediment and you'd also have to do things like you'd have to duplicate the uh, the same encoding scheme that nasa uses you'd have to use the same frequency so yeah this is this is really tough obviously I, I got a quote from the Extreme Tech website. They said, with enough careful observation of NASA's own transmissions and full reverse engineering of the communication protocol and the rover's command format, a hacker could gain access to the Curiosity with his own antenna. Damon uh, Poder recently also said regarding this, he said, as, as we found out after talking to several hackers, crackers, and security pros, the resources required to pull this off are prohibitive. prohibitive. The folks with the actual resources required to compromise Curiosity Cough, China, cough. Don't need our. <laughs> they don't need our cobbled together advice on how to do it. And yeah, uh, if anyone's going to do it, I I would definitely point right at right at China. They they would yeah, have the re- another they, government. Yeah, they would have yeah. the resources to pull off something like that. And obviously, this is like that. That is the real hard way to pull this off. But there's lots of other ways. If you wanted to hack into Curiosity, you don't have to replace the hardware. Uh, there's other ways to do it. Um, one of them is uh, expensive but less hard is to use a backdoor of some like third-party piece of hardware that's on Curiosity. For example, you know the uh, the pressure and humidity sensors uh, that we got from the, the the Finnish Meteorological Institute. If you could uh, get your hands on them and create a backdoor to controlling Curiosity, then yeah, you could do it. But of course. That's pretty low probability, right? I'm sure NASA vets the hell out of things like that. They're not going to let them have any sort of backdoor uh, intrusion capability into the into the main components of Curiosity. So well, yeah, Bob, sure, but I mean, your premise. 
I don't know that I would totally buy the premise that NASA wouldn't make a mistake, right? This is still oh no the, the institution that made that metric to English whatever mistake, right? That crashed one of right. the probes. Yeah, the metric. I mean, it sure. happens. Stuff like stuff like that happens. You know how many things can go wrong with a project like this that's so massively complicated? You know, forgetting about a backdoor on some third-party Finnish, you know, piece of equipment. It doesn't seem like a big stretch. I still think, but the limiting factor to anyone trying to hack this is they have to they need a signal that could reach Mars, right? I mean, that's that's why you would need like a, a country like China to do it. No, but no individual hacker is going to be able to actually get a signal to the the uh, the radio antennas they use are 400, 400 kilowatts. I mean, that's that's a that's powerful. Yeah, you, not, you know, that's nothing that you would need. Uh, a, you know, an incredibly well funded uh, like terrorist group or or um, you know, some place like China or a country, a, you know, the backing of a of a wealthy country to to do that. And uh, so that's 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 not going to happen. You know, no yeah. one's really going to do it. There's a much easier way to do this. Just if you really wanted to do this, break in and you know infiltrate NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Lab and use their own yeah. in, use their own infrastructure. If you really yeah. want to do this, you know, you could well, you could do that. You don't you don't need to build your own radio telescopes. Uh, and another way that might even be better, plant a mole in the JPL. I mean, there you go. You want how cheap would that be? I mean, it might take time. You know, for this person to get seniority and to get into that kind of to get into that kind of position, but it is, it is possible. And there's another point, there's another aspect of the story that really surprised me. I wasn't aware of this. It, you think, you know, compromising and hacking NASA systems would be tough, but man, did you know that this past March, NASA uh, sustained 47 advanced persistent threat attacks? These are APT attacks, 13 of which gave Chinese hackers access to NASA's internal network. They actually had access. They stole login credentials from 150 NASA employees, and that gave them access to to other secure systems. And there was another hack that's that was separate that gained total control of some you know unspecified NASA system uh, that that allowed mm-hmm. them to delete or modify files. They they could uh, upload hacking tools and modify logs so that uh, you, to cover their tracks, so you wouldn't even know they were doing anything. If you went, if you went through the logs and, uh, one of the worst ones they had, um, you, you know, you've all heard about these laptops being stolen from companies with like yep. credit card information and stuff. Well, NASA had 48 mobile computing devices stolen. One of them, get the, check this. One of them even had, uh, the ISS, the International Space Station control codes in it. Dope. You know, it's, whoa, oh, that's, no. that's really, that's really scary. All right. Well, Evan, you're going to tell us why people sneeze. Yeah. Why do you think people sneeze? Because <laughs> it feels good. Excuse to, I have a, it's an excuse to say, God bless you. I have a couple of guesses. If I were to make a guess, I would say, first, to clear the airway of some obstruction or foreign body of any kind. Well, more so, I would think of like a virus, Jay, or some sort of uh, something that can get you sick. Something's detected that's like, oh, I want to get this the hell out of my system. And you sneeze. And uh, I mean, that really will blow a lot of st- stuff out. I think that's one of the the main reasons I've read. Then we have a reaction to uh, the sun. If you look at the sun or get too much light in your eyes, you sneeze, and that could be a protective. That's that's rare, though, Jay. Only a a, a subset. That's probably incidental. I don't think that's there's that. No, that's very. I think ten percent or five percent of people actually can will sneeze by looking at a bright light. I I saw estimates as high as thirty three percent of people are affected by bright light. Yeah, one doctor online. Yeah, says about one out of every three people. I do. I I do it. Yeah, but but photic sneezers they're called. But clearly, though, general sneezing is not is not caused by bright lights, and I'm sure there's some other reason. So what is it, Evan? Well, new research has discovered 
that it's a means of rebooting our internal system in a sense. As it's reported, sneezing is our nose's natural reboot button. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania have recently discovered this with, uh, with tests and studies. When you sneeze, you're getting rid of bad particles that were inhaled through your nose that are living in there. It's a means of protecting the body from infection, viruses, and other things, like you said, Bob. But what's also going on here is that it seems to... So it activates the cilia, which are these, yeah, little hair-like parts, of, uh, little particles that um, are part of the mucous membrane that are inside the nose. And they're actually constantly moving, and they're constantly kind of what sends the uh, the mucus down into our system. We're constantly, like, drinking our mucus each day, ah, uh, about four, eh. four cups. I know, it's kind of a disgusting <laughs> thought. But the cilia has to constantly work to do that. So what a sneeze does is, there any, is it there activates any the cilia to a heightened. Yeah, I'm sure there is. It activates <laughs> the cilia to a to You're a. You're also constantly swallowing phlegm from your lungs. Or, or otherwise, you would, you know, probably drown in the stuff if you oh, yeah. do that. There's a, there's a disease that does that. It's uh, which one? Cystic fibrosis. Yeah, they lack cilia, so yeah. it just builds up. Ooh. The cilia, uh, when it sneezes, stays active for what's measured as minutes, minutes at a time, and it sort of helps kind of reset uh, everything having to do with that whole process of uh, filtering of uh, harmful things out of your body and keeping the mucus flowing uh, down mostly into your uh, into your stomach where it gets uh, zapped up by the acids in your well, stomach. Well, it makes sense. I mean, so if something, if an irritant gets into your nasal passages enough to trigger a sneeze, that also puts the cilia on alert. It makes them more responsive, so they're they're more active. They're more active in clearing out, you know, stuff from your nose. They're also more likely to uh, to be triggered again. They're more sensitive. It, maybe that's why you sneeze multiple times in a row. Because once you sneeze once, mm-hmm. then your your system is primed to sneeze again for a few minutes, as you say. Steve, remember that guy in high school that when he sneezed, he always sneezed three times without fail. Remember that dude? Who was that? I do. I do. I have you guys' name. That was uh, Sneezy McSneezerson. <laughs> Sneezy three the times. The triple sneezer? Yeah. yeah. I'm a double sneezer myself. That's my typical uh, regimen. And it varies from person to person depending on, well, whatever it is their particular body needs to get the job done, as they say. Uh, my wife, Jennifer, sneezes on average four times. Uh, I've, I've kept count over the years. <laughs> Hmm, very ever have ever have those marathon sneezing sessions, like fifteen sneezes, like within a few minutes? Like, what the hell's going on there? Okay, so what the researchers did is they took cells from the noses of mice at first, and they grew them in incubators, and they measured how these cells cleared mucus. Okay, and eventually they did the same test on people, and were able to do the same thing. And they grew these cells in the incubator for several weeks until the cells form the same type of lining that exists inside of our sinuses. The scientists then puffed some air on those linings in what they called sort of an in vitro sneeze. And sure enough, they were able to get those cilia on the lining to activate uh, accordingly, as if uh, uh, and the cilia sped up, right? It uh, activated faster and longer. But they also took tissues from sinusitis patients, and they puffed air on those tissues, and the cilia did not activate any faster or more effectively after the sneeze. So what they're, so what they're led to believe is that people who have uh, conditions like sinusitis, who do sneeze, and they try to sneeze quite a bit, or more often than average, apparently, it's because 
the sneezing is not activating the cilia as if they didn't have the condition. So they're constantly, so they're trying to reboot and reboot again, reboot again, and this isn't working. Let me sneeze again and sneeze again. Wow. So that's what they think is going on uh, when you sneeze, and they also think it might be a means of doing uh, some more research and trying to find help for people who uh, do suffer with uh, certain ailments that prevent them from uh, having their cilia move quickly. By the way, do you know what in vitro means? Yeah. I mean, out, out, inside. I mean, outside, outside, outside the body, of. in a, like an, in, in like a test tube or a, a petri dish type of thing. Yeah. So in vivo means a study that's in a living organism and in vitro means like yeah, in a petri dish. And do you know what it translates to? It's Latin. You know what the literal translation is? No idea. Vitro. It's like vitriol. Vit, uh, no, it, it um, means in glass. Oh, oh awesome. cool. Oh, I didn't know that. Nope. I did not know that. Sweet. So Evan, really so now, cool. so now when somebody sneezes, I'll just say happy reboot. Happy yeah, exactly. Reboot. Do you guys know that there's so many muscles involved in creating a sneeze? I found this fascinating. The muscles and their order of contraction. Your entire body works, well, your entire upper body, a lot of it works to create a sneeze. So your abdominal muscles, and this is in order. First your abdominal muscles go, uh, go into their motion, then your chest muscles, then your diaphragm, your vocal cord muscles, your muscles in the back of your throat, and lastly, your eyelids. All those muscles have to activate before, you, you know, close your eyes. All those activate before you actually accomplish the uh, the sneeze. And there's a whole center of the, well, there's a part of the brain. Uh, they call it the sneeze center. I don't know what the technical <laughs> term for that is, Steve, but there is a sneeze center of the brain that that gets the message when it's time to do this, and it, it sends out all those instructions to all, all the parts of the, uh, the muscles and the other parts of the body that huh. uh, have to make you, make you sneeze. That's hey, cool. ever, ever, I wonder sometimes, ever have a sneeze that just feels damn good? It's just like, damn, that felt good. Sure. Like, what, like scratching what the hell? an itch kind of What? Yeah, what the hell? I guess that's a good analogy. It's just wondering why the hell. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you feel refreshed. You but feel. More than that, it's just, I don't know. Orgasmic. I don't know what it is. Well, yeah, it's a release. Well. It's a release of tension, Bob. It's like it's a there's a buildup that happens, and then it it releases. There is something really satisfying about that release. What are we talking about now again? Sneezing. <laughs> Jay, 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 is that what you say afterwards? Jay, tell us about a woman who thinks that she found a long lost Egyptian pyramids on Google Earth. <laughs> yeah, this one is really funny. So this is um, a woman named Angela. Mikkel, and she's a self-described satellite archaeology researcher. That means she sits in front of her computer all day and looks at pictures. Right? Exactly. You're totally right, Ev. She's claiming that she found two pyramid complexes in Egypt using Google Earth. And we all know Google Earth is a awesome piece of uh, software that Google has produced that we could look at any place on the planet, and there's varying degrees of quality of satellite images taken you know, like New York City has a lot of high-res stuff, and then if you go out into deserts and things like that, they're not like incredibly high-res, but they're constantly updating and, and um, increasing the quality of these images. And a lot of people, guys, go on to Google Earth and they try to find funny, funny things and interesting things, but a lot of people go on there and also just try to find anomalies. Like they're looking for archaeological or lost civilizations or, you know, anything out of the ordinary. The thing is, when the experts are asked about this particular case, they say her pyramids are nothing more than eroded hills infused with a heavy dose of wishful thinking. She blogs on a website called Google Earth Anomalies. Have you guys seen the site? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah it's pretty, pretty cool. cool. It's pretty funny. A site dedicated it's... to anomaly hunting and it properly labeled. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of images on the site. People are blogging about the thing that they found today or whatever. And to me, it looks like a, a bunch of screenshots of, you know, like blobs and lines and just anything that has any kind of pattern to it. So lots of circular type objects that are super granular and out of focus, like, you know, I don't know, a satellite image zoomed in way too far. But they think they're seeing things. And that's the disconnect. That's the that's the thing that I find interesting about this news article is that there are people that just dedicate a lot of time to looking up these images. So Angela said that she found two clusters of mysterious angular mounds in the Egyptian desert. And she and she's quoted as saying, the images speak for themselves. It's very obvious what the sites may contain, but field research is needed to verify that they are, in fact, pyramids. So further field research won't actually be necessary, uh, according to researchers. They claim that these mounds are just common buttes. James Harrell, a professor emeritus of archaeological geology at the University of Toledo and is also a leading expert on the archaeological geology of ancient Egypt, had something to say about what Angela found, and I'm quoting him here. It seems that Angela Mickle is one of the so-called peridiots who see pyramids everywhere. Her Demai and Abu Siddam pyramids are examples of natural rock formations that might be mistaken for archaeological features provided one is unburdened by any knowledge of archaeology or geology. In other words, her pyramids are just wishful thinking by an ignorant observer with an overactive imagination. Wow. (laughs) No sugarcoating there. Thanks, James. James is the kind of skeptic that I want to be, but I just can't because I know that it's, it's like, he's just so like, that's really in your face, but it's true. I mean, you know, if you listen, listen closely to what he's saying, he's saying she's not educated enough to make these statements. So it turns out, like I said, James is saying that these, these formations are, are just buttes. They're four-sided hills that form when a mound of sediment contains a layer that has a hard layer of, of rock that doesn't want to erode. So over time, the surrounding ground erodes away and the layer that's erosion resistant it remains exposed and that's what makes these buttes, which are basically flat tops to a hill or maybe, you know, a pyramid-like formation. But these flat tops come from just a, a really hard layer that doesn't erode quite as fast as the rest of the surrounding rock. So it's like, the, it's like uh, the face on Mars. I mean, that, the yeah, face on Mars is, on is, Mars a, is a, kind of like a butte. Yep. Yeah. You know, that, that attitude though is pretty typical of scientists. You know, they, they usually don't give the time of day to amateurs who are, you know, venturing into their field and don't have the basic knowledge set to, you know, to, or yeah, to, to make, to avoid making, you know, really rookie mistakes like this. But, you know, again, we talk about the fact that, okay, yeah, sure, it's fun. Look on Google Earth and look for anomalies and wonder what they are. But don't think that there's anything to, you know, your discoveries or, um, you know, you have to appreciate how little you know if you are, in fact, an amateur. Uh, and listen to the experts because, you know, they're going to look at this, like, this is a perfect example. You know, look at that and go, that's a beaut. Here's why, you know, if you know, if you understand geology or archaeology, it's, it's obvious. This is not a pyramid. It's a natural formation. She actually, but you know, she does mention, which is standard in archaeology, if you find something from the air, and that includes now satellites, you can't make any claims about it until all you're doing is identifying things that might be interesting to to do ground research on. But you have to get on the ground to see what you're actually dealing with. Right. Uh, it's just right. too, it's, yeah, it's just too, too 
many possibilities for being misled based upon you know images from above. This is just the latest in our series on Google anomalies. I mean, these are these remember, guys remember Atlantis under the the oh, yeah. Atlantic Ocean of there. Of course, this, Atlantis. Yeah. Haven't haven't heard much Falcon. about that lately. Yep. Yeah, this is just gonna this is gonna keep cropping up. I said there's yeah. websites dedicated to searching for anomalies. I wonder what the chances are of us not having discovered yet something as massive as yeah, a pyramid. Yeah, there's that too. I thought the same thing. Right? It's like, you know, I think we would have come across that at some point, uh, you know, in people's wanderings. Like, oh boy, look at that. Another, even a small pyramid, I think, would have been found by now. But it's kind of like the same argument for, you know, cryptozoology. It's like, you know, we would have ran into a Bigfoot or a, a monkey bat by now, you know, we would have seen that uh-huh. damn thing. It's, At least the really big things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're not microbes. I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking big stuff. I could almost picture one in the in the jungles of Central America or something, right? Something so old and it's been like totally overgrown. Oh, absolutely. By and so forth. They absolutely got lost in that sense and then uncovered. But I don't know the desert. Uh, it's like it's it's really it's hard, much harder for for. It's kind of hard to, to yeah hide a big pyramid in the desert. The, yeah. Yeah. I find it really interesting that someone can come to those conclusions on their own and feel like really justified in saying it. Like I, I would never do something like that. I would always defer to what the experts say. I'd really like to hear her response to what the experts say. Yeah. We'll see. So Jake, give us a quick update on our Kickstarter campaign for Octa Skeptical Caveman. I'm very excited to announce that we met our, our pledge amount of $17,000. We actually were we're above $17,000 now, if you can believe it. Uh, people are continuing to donate and, uh, it just happened really fast. Like it, it happened in, um, in about 12 days. We got, we got to our funding level. So I can't be more pleased. I mean, we're there. We're, we're really, wow. we're ramping up. You know, I'm doing a lot of things right now. I just, you know, just today I had over two hours worth of meetings after work, uh, getting things lined up so we can, we can start production. So this is a go. Yeah, we're in, we're already writing the next few episodes. Uh, I'm not sure what order we're going to do them in. But we have lots of great ideas. It's really, really excited uh, about writing that. So the way Kickstarter works is you have to set like the bare minimum that you need to go forward with the project. Uh, but of course, it doesn't mean that we we're still have two weeks left to the to the campaign. We're still hoping to get as much funding as we can so that we can. You know, produce more Octoskeptical Caveman, raise production values, you know, fully fund, um, SGU video productions. We have, you know, lots of ideas for projects that we want to do. We really are grateful for everyone who has supported and, uh, and helped fund our videos. And let's see how far we can take this. I mean, you know, we obviously, we, our goal is to change the world. You know, we want to make the world a more skeptical place. Change and, the world. Yeah. The more we have lot, no, <laughs> no lack of ideas. Uh, or enthusiasm or people now, we, you know, we just need as much support as you can give us. So if you haven't taken a look at it yet, go take a look at the, the video, take a look at our Kickstarter campaign. Please consider supporting us. Uh, you know, we'd love to have your, your support. Plus we could do, you know, costume improving, special effects. We could increase, uh, the amount of time that we have to do this stuff. Which is huge, you know. To every 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 moment that we're we're involved in shooting is costing us money, and it's a lot a lot of heavy lifting and difficult work. And if we have extra time to put into it, the you know, quality shoots up. So any anything that you guys can afford to help us out, we really appreciate it. We do have a quick update to the uh, campaign as well. Uh, usually with these Kickstarter campaigns, once you get past the minimum, a lot of people will enhance some of the uh, the pledging levels. So uh, we haven't enticed anybody 
into the upper levels of pledging yet. So we, we did make one change, but let me review with you what these are. So at the $1,000 level or higher, you will actually get to join us on the set and we will give you a non-speaking extra role in one of the episodes of, of Octa Skeptical Caveman. So you actually get to be part of the video and you get to hang out with us for the day while we do the shooting. But at the $5,000 level, you'll actually get a named speaking role in one of the episodes. Or, at, at your choice, uh, you can decide to be a guest rogue on the SGU. If you don't want to uh, come and be with us for the weekend and shoot uh, and shoot an episode, you have that choice of just joining with us over, like we typically do over Skype, to be a guest rogue on one of the episodes. That was one change that we made to the uh, the gifts that we give for supporters. So again, please check us out. Go, you could get click through to the Kickstarter campaign from our homepage. Thanks again to everyone who's given us your support. And please, take, if you haven't taken a look at it, take a look at the campaign and consider giving us your support. All right. Well, Evan, tell us about last week's Who's That Noisy? Yeah, I'll do one better for you and actually play it again for those who have forgotten. Here we go. We had been working with a device to uh, collect urine during the flight that really worked pretty well in zero gravity, but it really didn't work very well when you're lying on your back with your feet up in the air like you were on the... I can imagine what that's like. You know, you're out in space, and we take so many things for granted in our day-to-day lives. Space is really just a whole other way of living, in a sense. You just just have to adapt in so many different ways. Indeed. So who is it? Alan Shepard. Of course. Alan. American naval aviator, test pilot, flag officer, and NASA astronaut who became the second person and the first American to travel into space. And he commanded the Apollo 14 mission, piloting the lander to the most accurate landing of all of the Apollo missions. Ah, cool. He is an American hero and a science hero as yeah. well. So he was talking about the fact that their zero-G mechanism for collecting urine didn't work so well when they were on the launch pad, I guess, laying on their back. Yeah. It just sort of <laughs> went everywhere, I guess. Hopefully they've improved on that design since then, I would, Im- I would imagine. I'd hope so. So who guessed that first? The first person to guess that correctly was listener Eric Randall from Ottawa, who sent us an email telling us exactly who that was. Alan Good Shepard. job, Eric. Well done. And what do you got for this week? Here we go for this week. This will be a quick one, but you may find this uh, familiar. A quickie with Evan. If- <laughs> it is almost a quickie with Evan. A quickie who's that noisy. Here we go. Listen closely. It's scientific! <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Evan, no way. What is that? I know who I know who it was. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Good one, Evan. All right. So send us your guess, please. Info at theskepticsguide.org or sguforums.com. That's our forums. Give us your best guess. Good luck, everyone. One quick email this week. Uh, this one comes from Trucky Lynch from San Francisco. Trucky? Trucky? And uh, Trucky writes, Critical thinking and the asymmetrical Apple screw. I thought this was kind of interesting. And he gives a link to a very interesting blog article. I know you guys have read it. So the article summarizes a, and a little experiment that uh, that these people did. What they did was they 
created a, a 3D drawing on their computer of a screw, just a regular screw, but with a, with an unusual head. The head didn't have any kind of um, opening, you know, that for like a, a screwdriver, you know, whether a Phillips head or a flat head or a hex or whatever. It just had like a little circular hole in the middle, so I'm not sure how you would use this screw. Um, they then emailed the picture to themselves, took a picture of their computer screen with it on there, and then uploaded the picture to Reddit, to a, a form on Reddit, with this tagline saying, a friend took a photo a while ago at that fruit company. They are obviously even creating their own screws. That's it. That's all they said. Huh. Not too long from there, the following headlines started popping up. Apple may be working on a top-secret asymmetric screw to lock you out of your devices forever. Apple reportedly invents asymmetric screw to keep us out of its gadgets. Oh, my God. That why was Apple's, genesis of that? Yeah. Why Apple's custom iPhone screws can't stop the do-it-yourself community and, and similar. So they essentially started a rumor, but with very vague you know, input, just mm-hmm. that, that, that fruit, fruit company, company, but even yeah. if we give people all right, Apple. So it's just a picture of some a screw with a weird head, and they said they obviously are even creating their own screws. And then from that, created this internet urban legend that Apple is creating asymmetric screws. And I don't know where that came from. Yeah, where does asymmetry come from? And the purpose being to keep you from being able to open up your devices. So I guess the notion is that an asymmetric screw will screw down but not out. So I guess you could – it locks down and then you can't remove it. So you can't open up your iPhone or your iPad or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's technically not a screw in my opinion. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean they, you, there are ways – I think a screw by definition has to go two ways. Otherwise, it's not a screw. Yeah, it's then it's a else. screw you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh. <laughs> right. I mean, there are ways to keep you from opening up the case without inventing some magical asymmetrical screw. I mean, and I guess yeah, it's, so, Bob and I were so, talking. I guess it's possible to make a screw that really could only only lock down and not come back. Some kind of ratcheting kind of design, yeah. But you know, or you could just rivet it or whatever. I mean, you could you could detach it in a way that doesn't that that can't be opened up. That 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 exists. You don't need to invent something special for that. Well, but the idea here is that to show how quickly a meme can get out there yeah. and uh oh, yeah. and that it you know especially something negative or you know the big the big brother type of deal where they're trying to control exactly. and, and all that stuff and don't forget guys you're not really opening up the iPhone for example with a screw you I mean you could pry it apart and then of course there's screws and things on the inside but to actually open the case, I don't think you you know you need a screwdriver or anything there's no screws probably not, not now anyway yeah yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it's funny. I mean, people just made it up. And you're right, Jay. It's just, there's a narrative out there. The narrative is that Apple is this big company that is, you know, a little bit maniacal in its control of its own, you know, its own devices. And so this is exactly the kind of thing that Apple would do, you know. So it plays right into to that narrative. So people bought it up. Yeah, preconceived So they, notions, they also yeah. tracked not only the news articles spreading this rumor without obviously any data behind it. But they then they they analyzed the comments by people reading those articles. Ninety percent bought it, hook, line, and sinker. Only ten percent, on average, expressed skepticism over the veracity of the story. But further, they found that the more distant the source was from the original story, the more confident people were were the commenters were that it was true. 
Wow, Think about weird. that. Interesting. The, the farther away they were from the source, the more confident they were that, that the story was true. Huh. So, you know, does it show a, also kind of an intellectual laziness on people's part to not try to dig a little deeper and figure out if this is, in fact, the truth yeah. or not? They're just kind yeah. of taking things at face value. But it's value. also, there's something else there, too. Is that they, they're filling in the gaps. You know, and the more gaps there are, the more they'll just fill it in with their own story. Yeah, the preconceived notions take a yeah. role, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Well, interesting little experiment. Demonstrating something that we knew that, you know, rumors can pop up online with very little provocation and people believe them when they shouldn't. And don't forget though, I mean, right now it's, you know, we're in August, middle of August. We've got a new iPhone coming out in a month. So the senses are on, you know, are on maximum. I mean, yeah. they are looking for any hint of any new change to, to the iPhone. So this is an annual thing. And it's a perfect time to prank it. And yeah. yeah, it is, it is the best time to do it. I mean, sure, if you came out with something like this in November or December, people would still be very interested in the iPhone 6. People would still, but this is the perfect time for something like this to come yeah. out. Yeah. And they said that. They, yeah, they, they counts. timed it this way deliberately. Oh, okay. Okay. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictilious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake. And you all can play along at home as well if you so desire. We're back to a regular old three-item news item science or fiction. With no theme? Just a, a standard kind. Yeah, the classic. No, a classic with no theme, yep. Wow, Rebecca's going to regret that she couldn't make this yeah. episode. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Yes. Indeed. All right, here we go. An instrument aboard the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has detected helium in the moon's atmosphere. That was item number one. Item number two, a recent lost letter study in which stamped and addressed letters are dropped on the street and their fate recorded demonstrates that wealthier neighborhoods are less altruistic. And item number three, researchers have discovered the code by which the retina communicates to the brain, leading to a retinal prosthesis that has restored near-normal vision to a blind mouse. Uh, that is so cool. I was wondering who was going to go first. Jay, you go first. <laughs> Steve, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, is this something that we've had around the moon for, what, two years now? Yeah, something like that. The ones taking all the really close-up images of the Apollo. Right, right. Oh, they're remapping. Yeah, yep. they're remapping. And the Transformers and other things. Yeah. All right, so the first one about the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter detecting helium, that's really cool. And in the moon's atmosphere, which you know you would think um, a lot of people don't even know that the moon has a, a slight atmosphere, but there is gas there. There has to be something there. You know, what, why would uh, why would helium be there? It's interesting, but I don't see any reason to, to not believe that. I don't know enough about you know, if, if the moon is emitting gases or, it, you know, maybe it used to and it didn't, it could be a remnant from a long time ago. I don't know, but I just don't really have any reason to to think that one's fake. Uh, the, the second one, very strange, this, this study that said that what about stamped and addressed letters that are left on the street have less chance, I guess, of getting put into the mail in a wealthier neighborhood. It's strange to me because of what it implies, but I think it's the, the sneaky thing about this is that maybe people in wealthier neighborhoods are less likely to pick up something that isn't theirs, which I don't even like where that's going. I don't know. I just, it's hmm, interesting. Um, there's really no way for me to know whether or not this is true in any way because sure, somebody could have done this study and sure, they could have found that. I think there is something to do though. I think the trick there is that it has something to do 
with what is going on in, in that person's mind versus the mind of someone that is in a, is in a poorer neighborhood. The final one about researchers discovering the code that the retina uses to communicate to the brain. That, damn, I hope that one is science. That is so cool. And it's such a breakthrough. The, you know, just the, the result of it could be phenomenally profound to people that, that, uh, you know, are having, having ocular problems. I would really, really hope that this one leads to something real. I've, God, Steve, don't pull this one away from me. So I'm going to base just on my enthusiasm. I'm going to say that that one is definitely science, even though it seems like the most likely candidate of it not being science out of the list. I'm going to say that the second one about the lost letter, that one's the fake. Okay, Evan? You know, we, uh, you think about the moon, uh, you don't think atmosphere, right? You think a big kind of rock in space more than anything, and we sort of forget that the moon has a very, 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 very thin atmosphere. I mean, it's... Does that mean we could take our helmets off? <laughs> depends, depends what, depends what movie you're trying off. to make, yeah. <laughs> so we don't think about atmosphere and moon sort of in the same sense. So that the orbiter has detected helium in the moon's atmosphere, I think, is plausible. We're probably talking a really tiny amount of helium. But nonetheless, helium detection, sure, I think that's plausible. The next one, lost letter study. Stamped and addressed letters are dropped on the street. I wonder what... It's an interesting study. Uh, I don't know really what to make of it. Uh, I don't see why... Uh, demonstrates that wealthier neighborhoods are less altruistic. Well, that's, you know, it's kind of an unfortunate commentary if that's the case. Is that possible? It's possible. Sure, certainly is plausible. The last one, a code by which the retina communicates to the brain. They've discovered it, that it's a code and a retinal prosthesis. Wow. That has restored near normal vision to a blind mouse. Well, the whole blind mice thing is, you know, <laughs> in itself kind of a... Uh, you have to replicate the study two more times. At least. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so you can get three blind mice. <laughs> this is this is fascinating stuff. Uh, I think this would be the most impressive, certainly, of the three, if this one is going to be true. And I think it's between this one and the... Uh, neighborhoods, the, uh, lost letter study. Uh, but I think I'll agree with Jay on this one. I'm going to go with the lost letter study and I'm hoping for the better nature of humanity to, uh, prove that that one is fiction. Okay, Bob. Oh man, this one is, is especially frustrating. Um, <laughs> the LRO detecting helium in the atmosphere, moon's atmosphere. I've got a problem with that because helium generally is the first damn thing to leave a planet because it's just so light and fast that they they escape the they escape from the atmosphere. So the fact that they're finding it in the moon's atmosphere uh, makes me skeptical, unless it's actually being um, created and uh, replenished. Perhaps cosmic rays somehow can release helium to the atmosphere, and so it's a continual process. So I can kind of justify that. The second one about the uh, the letters meeting a. A poorer fate in wealthier neighborhoods. Um, I don't know, who the hell knows? Yeah, I guess I kind of, I kind of think that uh, it doesn't make sense because I would think that perhaps you know the nicer neighborhoods, p- people would uh, pick them up and and deliver them or just put them in a mailbox or something. And, and the third one just sounds too damn good. I mean, come on. I mean, they they could actually uh, take you know take light impinging on a retina and. Figure out what the retina does to it and send that send that through the optic nerve. I'm gonna go with four. I mean, I just I can't pick any of these. I've got, you know, I I do a combination of um, 
reading headlines and reading the full articles. And you really screwed me with this one because I mean, since I'm going last, I could say that I've, I see hints and, and more in every one of these and stuff that I've seen. So you're really screwing with me on this one, bastard. Thank you. Shit. All right. I'll go with the, I'll go with the letters. It's fiction. You could go with the crowd. Okay. Here we go. So, guys are all pick number two. I guess I'll read them in order. Number oh one, an, an instrument aboard the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has detected helium in the moon's atmosphere. The instrument is the Lyman Alpha Mapping Project, or the LAMP, L-A-M-P, aboard the LRO, and that did indeed find helium in the atmosphere of the moon. Mm. So it's science. So that one is science, yeah. Okay. So is it being replenished as Excellent. Bob suspected? Doesn't really say anything about the source of it, just that it's there. Uh, so the, 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 this instrument is using... I can almost guarantee it. <laughs> you can, okay. could almost guarantee it. That's great. This instrument uses spectroscopy in it um, to detect elements on the surface in the atmosphere, the wispy, very thin atmosphere of the moon. And uh, it had to orbit around, you know, it had to take a survey for multiple orbits around the moon and gather a lot of data. But also, ha- there's also, uh, you know, helium in the interstellar space, you know, just helium in space. It's the second most common element after hydrogen. So it had to use a technique to sort of separate out or, or subtract out the background helium to see if there was any excess in the atmosphere around the moon, and they did find a little excess. So there's a tiny amount of extra helium in the moon's wispy atmosphere. Mm. Very interesting finding. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what it means in terms of like where the helium, helium is coming from. And you're, you're right. That was the first thing I thought of, Bob. Yeah, is it really helium really light? Wouldn't How's the moon yeah. holding on to any helium? But that's what it showed. And, uh, oh, Evan, you mentioned that there, yeah, there is indeed an atmosphere. And I think I remember reading some, somewhere once that, uh, if you took the amount of, uh, atmosphere inside of, say, a baseball stadium, that's as much atmosphere as the entire moon has spread out, spread out over the yeah. entire. Yeah. It's yep. thin. So let's go on to number two, a recent lost letter study in which stamped and addressed letters are dropped on the street and their fate recorded demonstrates that wealthier neighborhoods are less altruistic. You guys all think this one is the fiction, uh. and this one is the fiction. Yes. Oh, everyone. Yeah. Finally. Awesome. Which, means three is, <laughs> wow. which means three is true, which is awesome. Yeah. So what the lost letter study found, this was done in London neighborhoods, is that the wealthier neighborhoods were more altruistic, that the there was an inverse relationship. Oh, good. Yeah, it's funny because so, all I read, Steve, was that the, you know, the the wealthier English neighborhoods were more altruistic, but I don't know how they determined that because I didn't read the stupid yeah, article. Yeah. So I'm like, wait, maybe it wasn't a letter. Maybe it was, you know, somebody kicking a kid and, and somebody would always <laughs> prevent it. You know, it's like, oh, man, did he twist it? Get away from me, kid. You bother me. So this is this technique was first used in the 1960s by American social psychologist Stanley Milgram. You guys have probably heard of Milgram. He's a famous psychologist. They found that in the wealthier neighborhoods in the study, an average of 87% of the letters were returned. They were all, you know, addressed to the researcher, so they would go to his house. Uh, is he way to count them? And <laughs> compared to only 37% in the poorer neighborhoods. The interpretation of these studies I always find very problematic. How do we know that it's altruism that's affecting people's behavior and not other external factors about the neighborhood and how busy it is or how safe it is or how clean the streets yeah, are true. or whatever? You know, there's lots of other 
variables in there. I'm not sure you could all chalk it up. But the, the way they interpreted it as the, uh, the deprivation of poverty resulting in a reduction in altruism. Uh, but again, that's just one of many possible interpretations. Huh. Well, I could see that too. You know, if you're, if you feel secure, then you have the luxury of being altruistic, altruistic. If you feel insecure because you don't have resources and you're living in a poor neighborhood and you feel threatened, you're less likely to allocate resources to being altruistic. You, know, you could think about it that way in you know, sort of purely survival terms. Um, so that kind of makes sense. But what's interesting with these kind of studies too is you can make sense of it any way you want. You know what I mean? Like if I told you it was the other way around, you could make that make sense too, you know? People in poor neighborhoods have to band together more, and whereas <laughs> wealthier neighborhoods are more isolated and, and don't care as much about their neighborhoods. Whatever. I mean, you could just you could True. Ret- retroactively explain any result in these kind of psychological studies, or so, especially social psychological studies. But the result is what it is. Uh, let's go on to number three. Researchers have discovered the code by which the retina communicates to the brain, leading to a retinal prosthesis that has restored neuronormal vision to a blind mouse. And that one is, of course, very cool science. Awesome. Excellent. Uh, Steve, uh, Steve, I remember reading, I remember reading that the retina just doesn't passively send the signals to the brain, that the retina actually is involved in a certain amount of pre-processing. Um, that's exactly the code that they discovered. Yeah, exactly. So it's not just transmitting the signals, it's also manipulating it and, and so that you're sending the brain this already, you know, partly processed information that, that the brain, of course, does even more processing too. So they, so they, yeah, which exactly. made it even harder for me not to pick this one because I mean, they had, I mean, they really had to know, you know, how, you know, what the retina is doing to this code, you know, this yeah. light, which is wow, that's amazing. Yeah, they figured it out. Um, so essentially you could have a computer chip you know, with light sensors replacing the retina and then communicating through the optic nerve to the brain in, in the language of the retina so that the brain understands it and can interpret it better. Now, before understanding this code, you know, researchers have been developing these sort of retinal replacements and they work, but not very well. You have to create a lot of stimulation in order to get the, uh, the neurons to fire, you know, that will send the signal to the brain. Uh, and you creates blurry, fuzzy images, but using the same, essentially the same receptors, but, but now with the code, with the, tra- the proper translation, it, it dramatically improved the, the quality of the images. The mice were, were able to much better recognize even like faces of other mice and, Whoa. and much more details of what they were looking at. Yeah. So they said pretty much anything they threw at them, they seemed to recognize. So. Holy crap. So we've done a dr- dramatic, um, improvement. They, there was a second component to this as well. The, this is for the, this technique works best for those individuals who have retinal disease, but they still have the neurons that the retina stimulates, the ganglion cells. Um, those are the out sort of the output cells of the retina, and the, it's those ganglion cells that you're stimulating with the retinal prosthesis. So it's that was that's the code that they figured out is how the retinal cells stimulate the ganglion cells in wow. order to communicate to the brain. And they but they needed to come up with a mechanism by which that could happen as well. So they actually used little genetic manipulation in the mouse to put these photoreceptor proteins in the ganglion cells. And then they generate little pulses of light with the so the so they have the the, the sensors that also then alter the incoming image with the proper code 
and then use little pulses of light to stimulate the photoreceptors genetically implanted into the ganglion cells, which then sends a signal to, you know, depolarize and send a signal to the brain. So sort of two parts to this new new technique that they developed. Um, they're looking forward to going forward with human trials. Of course, yeah. in the article, they had to bring up the, you know, the Geordie LaForge's visor. You know, you have to connect whatever the new technology is to some science. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's actually quite plausible. You could be wearing a visor that has a computer, you know, chip in it and it, it can sense the light and then communicate, you know, to the optic nerve the, the proper information, which then can be interpreted by your brain as a, as a high, as a very high resolution image. So it is actually, you know, it's not that big of a stretch that you're wearing something which is, which is perceiving the light images and then communicating back to the optic nerve. But yeah, they had to mention that. Of course. So good job, everyone. You guys all nailed it this week. A little yeah. consternation in there. A little <laughs> struggled, struggled a little bit, which is good. Well, they were good, but, good topics. Yeah. Yeah. So Jay, finish us off with a quote. This is a great quote sent in by a listener named Carl Gerhardt. And the quote is from Benjamin Franklin. The quote is, mm. for having lived long, I have experienced many instances of being obliged by better information or fuller consideration to change opinions even on important subjects, which I once thought right but found to be otherwise. Benjamin Franklin! Oh, yeah. That is an awesome quote. Yeah, it is. Exactly the open-minded skeptical position. Real quick, Benjamin Uh, Franklin, guys. Ben. Anybody? Ben Franklin. Anybody? He invented lightning, right? BF. Yeah. He he was one of the founding fathers of the United States. He was considered to be a noted polymath. As author, printer, political theorist, a politician, a postmaster, a scientist, a musician, an inventor, a satirist, diplomat, civic right? activist, statesman, and yep. diplomat. Yeah, he Renaissance he man really was a Renaissance man. Yeah, a guy was was brilliant and intensely interesting, very well spoken, and just a, just a fantastic guy. Well, thanks, Jay. That was a that was a great quote this week. Don't forget that the entire SGU will be at DragonCon in Atlanta, Georgia, August 31st to September 3rd. We will be putting on a live show Saturday night, but we'll be hanging out for the whole weekend, participating in a couple other panels, and we'll be we'll have a, a table where you can come see us. Uh, so if you are going to DragonCon, come by and see us. If you haven't been before, you might want to check it out. Uh, it is a uh, it's a fun conference full of geekery and nerditude and a little skepticism thrown in. So uh, definitely join us. And we will also be in Nashville, Tennessee at SciCon, October 25th to 28th. Again, putting on a live show. We will have a an SGU dinner there as well. We will be, be there the whole weekend to meet our listeners who come. So if you haven't had a chance to make it out to Las Vegas for a TAM, uh, let's say you're on the East Coast. This is your opportunity to see us at uh, a similar conference in Nashville. Thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Surely. Thank, thank you, you, Steve. It's good to be here. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. 
For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice. I like big suits and I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny.